And as you make your way there in the text, uh, we will, uh, let me pray for us uh, as we open up God's Word together. Okay, now, now it feels like He's with us. Okay, dear God, Father, as we come to You and Your Word, uh, we want to, uh, we want to be changed by it and we don't want to just build up knowledge. We want to be, uh, want to be moved by this. Uh, we want to see you more clearly, and we want to uh, see what you call us to and who you've made us. And so I pray right now for your Holy Spirit to do that work in each one of our hearts um, and uh, shape us by your word tonight. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, in many areas of life, and I think I could probably safely say most areas of life, uh, what you do results in who you are. So, most areas of life, who you are, I'll say it backwards, is a result of what you do. Or, or I could say in kind of another more simple way, your actions, I'll just write that up there, Your actions create your status. So on Sunday, a big thing in the NBA, the NBA All-Star Weekend took place this last weekend. So on Sunday was the big game where you got the best players from Eastern Conference, Western Conference. I think it's 15 on each. You got the, the 15 players on each team playing together on that weekend, all of them NBA All-Stars. Uh, but that NBA All-Star thing, that, that name, that title, that status didn't just come out of nowhere. Um, who they are as NBA All-Stars is a result of their achievements on the basketball court. Uh, it's a result of them being elite players of, of what they have done. So what they did led to who they are. Um, most of you in this room tonight are students of Oklahoma State University. Uh, but that's not just kind of out of nowhere. Your status as an OSU student is a result of two or three things. Your academic achievements, so you, you made the grades to get into school. Um, for a lot of you, you paid the tuition. Some of you had scholarships, but for me, you paid the tuition. And then all of you had to, at some point, um, apply and enroll. What you did made who you are, resulted in who you are. Are as an OSU student. But there are a few areas actually, um, not as many I would say, but a few areas in which this actually gets flipped and gets reversed and that who you are leads to what you do. Uh, so some time ago, uh, the Moss family held a reunion in Missouri. And so I, as a teenager, as a Moss, someone born into the Moss, I am a Moss by birth, and by name, that meant that I go to the Moss family reunion. It's because of who I was that resulted in what I did. And that never actually will work in that situation. It will never work the flip. Um, it's not one of those things where because I went to the Moss family reunion, now I get to be a Moss. It doesn't work that way. I already am one. And that's why I go. And if you're not a Moss, going to the reunion doesn't make you one. Um, and so this is an area in which it's actually the result. Your status leads to your actions, leads to going to those things. And so there are a few areas that are like that. And this is an important issue whenever it comes to religion. In standard religious practices, most of the time, my actions give me my status. What I do is what makes me who I am. So to be someone who is... Um, cherished or welcomed by God to be someone who belongs to God in Islam means that I am a person who has faithfully practiced Islam, that I have faithfully practiced the five pillars of Islam. Uh, to, to achieve full enlightenment in Hinduism or in Buddhism is be a, a result of the things that I do. My actions throughout my life or, or specifically in Hinduism throughout my many lives um, 
is what leads to eventually that status, that enlightenment. In, in most of the pagan religions all through history, you do certain things to be a certain person that the gods like, but Christianity is the exact opposite. In Christianity, it is my status that leads to my actions. I'll say this one more way. So I've said it two ways. Let me say this one more way. Um, in Christianity, I'm gonna, I'll start on this side. It is always the indicatives that lead to the imperatives. So those of you guys English majors, you, you, you may catch all that. But indicatives mean statements of truth or statements of fact. I'm indicating something that is true, leading to imperatives, which is a statement of command. And when you read through the New Testament documents, there are all kinds of imperatives and commands that are given to us as Christians, given to us as the church. But those things almost always flow out of indicative statements first. So here's a really great example. Uh, sexual morality, sexual purity. One of the uh, big chapters on that is 1 Corinthians 6 about how we avoid sexual sin, we avoid sexual immorality. But that imperative statement for Paul is not just kind of arbitrary. Hey, don't have sex before you're married because you might get some sort of STD. Don't have sex before you're married because that's just, that's just bad. We shouldn't do that stuff. No. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, he says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price, indicative. Therefore, imperative, honor God with your body. The reason that we don't engage in sexual morality is because my body doesn't belong to me. I have been bought at a price of the blood of Jesus. And so, he has marked me as his own, and that shapes then the way that I live. It's not that if I do really good things and I make sure to always be sexually pure, then I get to belong to Jesus. No, I belong to Jesus and therefore I honor Him with my body and I live in such a way that pleases Him. Uh, another kind of big picture example of this is the entire book of Ephesians. If you read through the entire book of Ephesians, it's really cool. It's divided into six chapters and it is almost exclusive. Actually, it is. The first three chapters, if I remember right, the first three chapters of Ephesians have no imperative statements. There are no commands. All the first three chapters of Ephesians are is, this is who you are in Jesus. This is your new identity in Christ. This is what He's made you to be. This is how He has brought Jewish, Jew and Gentile people together and made them one in Christ. This is what it is to be adopted into His family. And then after three chapters of indicative statements, truth statements, then Paul, or Paul finally gets to the very first verse of chapter 4 where he says, Therefore then, I urge you to live lives worthy of the calling you have received. And he spends the next three chapters talking about how we live as Christians. But it's never live this way so you can be good. It is God has already made you good with himself through Jesus. Therefore, we live this way. And that's really important to remember when we get to, uh, when we get to Christianity, when we come to how we are supposed to live. We just saw this actually take place again last week. Romans 12, we turned a corner, so we've heard 11 chapters of truth statements about what Jesus has done for you, what God has done for you in Christ, how He, in spite of your sin, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of the way I have turned against Him, He sent Jesus, and Jesus took the punishment that I deserve to make me holy. I'm already holy. I'm already His. I'm already loved by Him. And after 11 chapters of talking about that, then Paul says in chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, some translations say, in view of God's mercy, so in view of everything I just told you for 11 chapters, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he says, in light of everything I've said, this is what you do. There are two reasons why the New Testament is so big on um, reversing the order when it comes to the commands. Okay? And, and uh, the first is this, because biblically speaking, we cannot live the life we're supposed to live until God has made us who we're supposed to be. Um, I am, this is what Romans 6 talks about, I'm a slave to my sin. I can't, I can't live 
the way that I'm supposed to to honor God until Jesus makes me His and places His Holy Spirit in me. And then I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to righteousness. So that's one reason why. And the second reason is because it provides, when the gospel is viewed rightly, it provides the right kind of motivation for doing the right thing. Now I don't do good things because I'm scared and I just hope I can do enough good things that maybe God will like me and maybe at the end of my life I might have done enough good things to get into heaven. It's not why I do it. I don't do good things so He won't be mad at me. I don't do good things so I can feel better about myself. I do these things out of a joyful response to the one who gave me my entire life. That's easier. That's better. That's more natural. This is why we talk about this and you'll hear us say it a lot. I hope you're sick of it by the time you're done with your, with your years in college. This gospel-centered life. That I let Jesus' works and identity shape every area of my life. Because of what He's done, this is what I will do. This is how I will live. Um, it's actually fascinating. If you look at 12 again, I'll just I'll show you this. It says, uh, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That word spiritual is actually a little bit debated. Sometimes it can get translated that, but the word in the Greek is logikos, okay? Uh, from where we get the word logic. That is what it sounds like, what I think Paul is saying. Some people translate reasonable, but this is the only logical, this is the only logical response. In view of everything God has done for you, the reasonable response is, why wouldn't I offer my body as a living sacrifice to Him in response to those things? So, the reason I want to stop and tell you that is because for the rest of, the rest of Romans, the next four chapters um, are all going to be, or five chapters, the next five chapters are all going to be basically imperative. Live like this. This is how you live as a Christian. This is what you're supposed to do with your life. But I don't want us to, as we're finishing out this year, lose sight of the 11 chapters that led us to this point. We don't do any of these things we're about to do to be good people. We don't do any of these things so that God will be happy with us and let us into heaven. We don't do these things so we can feel better. We do these things because He's already done all of this for us. And the, the reasonable response is that I would live like this in light of that. So, now with that, let's look at chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. He says, first of all, to them in, in 12 through 1, 2, um, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. He says in 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then he says from there, and I'll just read all of these verses because it's short. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So, Paul says... We will offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. He says we're not going to conform our minds to the world, but we're going to transform them. We'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the first place Paul goes when he starts talking about living sacrifices and a renewal of the mind is to church life. First place he goes is to community, how you interact with other brothers and sisters. And there's actually a pretty strong link because he talks about renewing the mind. And then verse 3, you may pick it up when we read it, actually uses the word thinking four times. So he's going to go right into what a, what a renewed mind does, how a renewed mind thinks. Here's what it says. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That word is actually sober thinking. With sober thinking, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So he, he links them in and says, all right, this is what it looks like to live this way. You're going to live rightly in community. He starts by saying this, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you. Um, when he says grace, Paul uses grace in, in different ways sometimes. That word, uh, charis, 
charis in the Greek literally just means gift. And usually when Paul talks about grace, he's talking about the grace that saved me. The grace that I do not deserve in which Jesus took my place and saved me from my sins so that I might be part of God's family. But there are other times in which he just talks about it as a gift that God has given to me. And, and specifically, Paul, when he talks about this grace given to him, he means his, uh, his apostleship, his role as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's, he's kind of claiming big authority here. He's, he's getting serious. He says, as an apostle, one sent by Jesus, I say to you, but he doesn't just say to you. He says, I say to every one of you. It's kind of like the parent. When I, when I stand before my kids and I'm trying to get their attention, I say, look at me. Look at everybody's eyes up here. Ella, look at me. Hudson, eyes. Hadley, look right here. Okay, that's what Paul's doing. Everybody, look at me for a second here. I want to talk here. This is important. And he wants, he wants to make sure everybody's um, noticing and listening. And he says to them um, that you must think with humility and unity. Do not think more highly of yourself, but with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That last phrase, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, is a tricky one. Um, and there are, there are a number of ways to try and figure out how to, how to interpret it. Uh, it depends. The, the biggest question is, what does he mean by faith there? Does he mean subjective faith? That is, um, according uh, to, to my connection to Jesus, according, uh, or in, sorry, according to the amount or type of faith that I have, or does he mean objective faith? And by that he would mean like the faith, the gospel. So according to the gospel. Um, in which case, what he would be saying is, don't think of yourself more highly than you should. Instead, look at yourself compared to the gospel. That's how you should be looking at yourself. I love, I, I like that idea. I think that sounds really good, and I think we should do that. But in this, in this phrase, actually, I think because of the context that Paul's actually saying, he's talking about subjective faith. He's saying that you ought to think of yourself no more highly than you are. Think of yourself rightly according to the faith that you've been given. What I think he, he means by that, the measure of faith, I think he's about to go into this idea of giftedness, and so he means according to the giftings that God gave you when you came to faith, according to the kind of abilities that he gave you, um, that's how you ought to think of yourself, recognizing that it was given to you from God. Here's what he says in verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So Paul uses this body metaphor a lot, actually, when he describes what it means to be Christian community, what it means to be the church. He uses it in at least two other places, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. And when Paul uses this metaphor that we are the body of Christ, we are a body, he uses it basically to stress three different things. The first is this, um, to stress that we all have a connection through Christ as our head, that we are all connected to each other as we are connected to Jesus. Secondly, he uses it to stress that there is unity in diversity. We each have a different role, but we are all together bound up in this thing. And then thirdly, he uses it to stress that each member, the need for each member of the body to do their part, just like every member of a human body ought to do its part. Um, but I, I want to draw your attention to this phrase here in verse 4. He says that um, we are members, uh, actually verse 5, sorry. So we, though many, uh, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That phrase is, is pretty strong, individually members one of another. What he's getting at is this, that in the moment that you signed on to Jesus, that you said, I'm committed to Jesus, this is who I'm for, I'm for Jesus. The moment you signed on to Jesus, realize it or not, you signed on to me. And the moment I signed on to Jesus, I signed on to you. When I committed myself to Jesus Christ, um, I committed myself to each and every one of you who are also followers of Jesus. That Christ and His church are inseparable. And so you do not get to choose one without the other. As soon as I become a part of Jesus, I become a member of you. 
and you a member of me. We belong to each other now. And this is a huge idea in the New Testament. This is one of the reasons why we stress another one of our five things, which is, oh, wrong one, commitment to community. Um, This is why we stress commitment to community and specifically the local church. Um, because when you became a Christian, you became a part of the church universal. And part of being the universal church means that you are invested in and involved in the local church. Uh, For many of you in here, um, you know that we are connected deeply to Sunnybrook Christian Church, and so we love for you to be involved and a part of that there. Not every one of you is at Sunnybrook, and that's okay. Um, we don't really mind specifically the church as long as it's a solid gospel-oriented church. Um, we just want you to be involved in the life of the church because that's where God's heart is and because you can't stay in college forever. And so at some point, you're going to have to learn how to be connected to a multi-generational body of people. And so we stress that a lot here. You are part of that. Um, Verse 6, he says, um, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Um, Notice you actually have here another move from indicative to imperative. That is, since we do belong to each other, indicative statement, you belong to everybody else in this room. Um, That means, or also, since we've been given a specific gift, that's an indicative statement, then here's the imperative, use that gift for the good of all your brothers and sisters. Use that gift for the church. If this is true of you, that you're a part of this body, then this should be true of you that you use your gifts and abilities to serve that body. Um, We know that there are some places um, in this part of the world, particularly in Corinth, and and what's fascinating is Paul is writing this from the city of Corinth. Um, In the city of Corinth, people had had gained this crazy fascination with spiritual gifts. Um, For those of you who don't know, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more in the second half, but just kind of for those who don't know, Um, The New Testament teaches that we've each been, at the moment you came to Christ, um, that each and every one of us were given a spiritual gift, um, some sort of ability that is to be used for him and his church and his kingdom. Um, And in the church in Corinth, there was this crazy fascination with gifts, especially the flashy ones. Okay, especially the ones that some people might call more supernatural. That's probably not a good name for them. When we, when I, by that I mean like tongues and prophecy and healing. Uh, supernatural's not a great name for them because technically every one of the spiritual gifts is supernatural. Every one of the gifts is from God Himself, is from the Holy Spirit. And so when we try to separate out, it gets a little messy. And that's actually kind of what the Corinthians were doing. They got really fascinated with some of the flashier ones, particularly tongues was a really big deal to them. The ability to speak in tongues made you look really spiritual, made you look like you were really connected to God, made you look like you had something that everybody else didn't have. And so they got fascinated with this, and and those who had that began to think of themselves very highly and as super spiritual. And those who didn't felt like they were on the outs. And so Paul is at pains to stress to his churches that that is not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. You don't get a particular gift because you're more spiritual. You know why you get that gift? Because God chose to give you that one. And that's all. Because there's nothing special about you, and there's nothing, um, we don't have special gifts in the church that we need, and some that we don't really need. All of them are important. And so Paul makes a really big deal out of this idea that all of these gifts are important and all of these need to be used. And this would connect back, of course, to Paul's insistence in verse 3. Do not think more highly of yourself than you should. Don't, don't get caught thinking that because of the way you're wired, because of your giftings, that you don't need others in the church. Um, or that you're better than or more important than others. And then here he goes into this list of these different gifts. Um, this, gift, this list here is not exhaustive, so there are a bunch of spiritual gifts. First, uh, the ones I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 12 has a list of spiritual gifts in it, actually two different lists. Um, 1 Peter 4 has a small list, and Ephesians 4 has a small list of, of gifts 
in it. But all, so there are a bunch of different gifts, and they're, they're different in each little place with some overlap, which leads us to believe that none of these gifts are exhaustive. There's probably a bunch of different gifts um, that the Holy Spirit gives out to people. But when you read through those, you get an idea. Paul chooses these ones, I don't think, for any particular reason, but let me just briefly list them off and, and uh, just so we can kind of get an idea of what he's talking about. The first he says is prophecy. If someone has the gift of prophecy, let them use it in proportion to their faith. Um, when he says prophecy, prophecy, I take that to mean the ability to speak truth to a specific situation without studying or preparing. Something that comes more spontaneously than, uh, rather than something that is prepared, something that is put together. Um, so let me say this, pri- uh, what prophecy is not, it is not primarily about uh, foretelling the future. When we think of prophecy, we usually think of the future. Prophecy is not foretelling, it is forthtelling. So it's not seeing the future, although that might sometimes be a part of it. We see that in the Bible. It's more bringing forth what God has laid on your heart in a given moment to a specific situation. Here's another thing prophecy is not. Prophecy is not infallible. That is, someone can speak a prophecy that they've received from God or they believe they received from God, and it can be wrong. Um, they could mishear it. They could have not heard anything. They, they could have heard something, but they might communicate it poorly. And so, um, in the Bible, we see this. First uh, Thessalonians 5, Paul says, Don't despise prophecy. But then he says right on the flip side of this, But test everything. So when someone says, Hey, I have a word from the Lord. I'm going to speak that to you right now. Paul says, Don't just buy it right off the bat. Okay? You hold that up to the Scriptures, because only the Scriptures are infallible and inerrant. Only this right here is the only thing we believe to be without any falsehood or without any error, without any mistakes in it. Human beings communicating those things can have error in it. Um, The other thing that you need to know about prophecy is it does not therefore replace Scripture and it can never contradict Scripture. The second gifting that he gives here is service. Um, That word in the Greek is diakonia from where we get the term deacon. If you grew up in a Baptist church, you know that, that term, deacon, um, which is generally in the Bible, a lot of times it seems to be kind of a position. Uh, for example, in Acts 6, when these seven men are selected to distribute and take care of the physical needs of the widows in the church there. So it probably refers to ministering to the church by organizing and providing for the material needs of the community. Um, the next gift that gets mentioned is teaching. Somewhat self-explanatory teaching means teaching. Um, It's the ability to explain the truths of the gospel. And then exhortation is actually related to teaching, probably. The Greek word means like to comfort or to encourage. Um, It seems to be sort of like teaching, but um, more about like encouraging Christians to live out the truths of the gospel. So someone with a gift of teaching does a really good job of explaining the truths of the gospel. Some of the gift of exhortation does a really good job of encouraging and walking alongside and admonishing people to live out those truths that they've now better understood. That, that, that seems to be what's happening there. Then you have someone who has a gift of uh, giving or contribution. Um, and this word is often used to describe providing what is lacking. Most probably that means like physical resources, money. Food. So someone who has a gift of, this sounds strange because as Christians, we're all supposed to be givers. We should all be giving. But there are some who are uniquely gifted by God to be able to provide what is lacking in a given situation. Like I said, that's often probably resources, but that may be also like giving of your time or of your life to invest in someone where there is a need. Giving of hospitality, those kinds of things, I think can fit in that as well. Um, leading is pretty self-explanatory probably refers to the position of elders or pastors or ministers and then lastly here he describes someone with a gift of mercy um, which is probably the ability to be sensitive to the needs of others and to give themselves to visiting or encouraging those who are suffering those who are sick in the church my dad has the gift of mercy that's what he does Um, And and when he goes, when people in our church are hurting, when they're sick, when they're going through suffering, my dad visits them. And something in that, the Spirit has a way of just encouraging people through my dad when he spends time with people. They they walk away with being built up 
because he's got that kind of gift. Some of you have that gift that's been given to you to, to be with people in their suffering and, and to find, or for them to find uh, immense encouragement from, from that. But the key idea that Paul's getting here, like I said, he just randomly, I think, randomly chooses these gifts. He could have listed all kinds of different ones. He's just giving this kind of sample of gifts. And the key idea that he's trying to stress is whatever your gift is, be satisfied with it, be humble in it, and use it diligently for the rest of the body. So whatever God's given you, be satisfied with it, be humble in it, and use it diligently for the rest of the body. It's that last line that we're going to focus on here for the rest of our lesson. Be diligent in using it for the body. But we'll do that in just a few minutes. So take a quick break, stretch your legs, restrooms back there, and then we'll jump back in. Okay. Let me tell you my story. Uh, my uh, college years, I was at uh, in Joplin, Missouri, at Ozark Christian College. Scott and I both went there. He was there way before me, though, obviously. <laughs> uh, but uh, we uh, we both went to that school, and uh, and and so I, I'm going to to school at Ozark. And for my first couple years, I. Uh, helped at this little church called Carterville Christian Church on Wednesday nights with these 5th and 6th grade boys, a small group. And it was like the craziest group of kids that I've ever worked with. And uh, just a lot of them from kind of some, some rough backgrounds, and they were just hyper. And um, I literally, total side story, I won't go into all the details, but um, kid actually running around playing a game of tag in this big house there, um, got his finger chopped off in a door one night. Um, it was my job, uh, my job to squeeze and hold his wrist so he didn't bleed out in there. Um, so welcome to the ministry, Drew. Uh, but so I, I worked there. I, I did that for two years, and then uh, during my third year, I, I actually ended up traveling down to Stillwater every weekend and working with their kids ministry. Um, they, their kid, their children's ministry had just left. I had done a youth internship at Sunnybrook. Um, that summer, and so when their kids minister left, they needed somebody who could help on Sundays. So, like, would you want to come help do this? I was like, Yeah, man, I'll, I'll do that. I picture myself coming in as the the, the cool new kid minister that's going to lead this ministry and take everything over. And I show up on like the first Sunday, and the lady there uh, ha- holds up this camel suit and says, "Go put this on." <laughs> and I'm like, "What?" He's like, uh, "Yeah, this is your job. You're Humphrey the camel from here on out." And, uh, and here, watch this video because you've got to learn how to do this dance that you're going to do called the Humphrey Hop. And uh, so I literally, I, I, I will not show you, but I, I remember I'm, I'm going there and apparently they had like, Humphrey was a thing there. So the, I wasn't the first guy, but they knew, they knew of Humphrey because I remember, I remember I'm back, backstage, it's in this little ball closet in the side of the gym. And I'm sitting back there, and I've got, my, I've got my camel costume on, and I'm sitting here going, man, this is a little weird, you know, but <laughs> I can hear them, and, they, and they, it comes time for me to come out, and I hear them all, they go, kids, are you ready for Humphrey the Camel? And I hear a collective, no! <laughs> and, and, and I remember just sitting back there being like, what the crap am I doing with my life? Um, but I did that for my whole junior year. I traveled down, and I didn't have to be Humphrey the Camel all year long, but for like the first like several months of that, that's what I was doing. Um, and then I did kids' ministry stuff. Um, and then my senior year, um, my senior year, I started going in Joplin. I, I kind of finished that kids' ministry thing because I had I'd gone overseas over the summer, so I had to end the thing with Sunnybrook. And, and uh, my senior year, I come back, and I didn't have any responsibilities uh, at any of these churches, so I decided I'm going to start going on Sunday mornings to uh, what was kind of like the big cool church at the time in Joplin, which is Christ Church of Orinoco, this church just outside, and it was kind of known for being the church with like kind of the, the most cutting-edge worship and kind of the cool place that a lot of the, the college students liked to go to at that time. It was really growing, and so I started going there, and I remember two or three weeks into going to that church that I hated it. Um, I remember waking up on Sunday morning and not wanting to go uh, and, and just dreading it. And I remember sitting in the service when I would sit there and just being uh, so ready for it to be over. And as soon as it was over, 
just jetting as you know quickly as I could getting out of there. Um, and I thought to myself, like, this is not good. Uh, a, you know, I should want to go to church. B, like, this is, I'm, I'm studying to be a minister, right? Like, I'm going to be going to church for a job. This is going to be my life. And so if I hate this, um, then what am I going to do about this? And, and so I, I'm only struggling with that for a few weeks. And then it dawned on to me some three or four weeks in that this was the first time since being at college, this was the first time that I was merely going to church, but I was not a part of a church. That I was going and sitting in the pews on Sunday, and I was hearing sermons, and I was singing songs, and I was getting out, but I wasn't actually like invested in the life of that body. I wasn't serving in any capacity there at that church. And so I ended up, my cousin had just taken this small youth ministry in a little town in Missouri called Cassville, Missouri, about an hour away. And, and, uh, and I said, man, dude, I, I need to come help with you. I want to I go serve that. So I went there and started like leading worship for their youth group and stuff and it was this little bitty church still doing like organ music and all it was everything opposite of Christ Church of Ornogo not cool not big not cutting edge and I loved it um, I, I loved getting to be there and being a part of that family and and the reason why is because I wasn't just going to it I was a part of that church I was involved in that church and I think that that matters a lot um, if there are two things to take away from these few verses that we just read tonight out of Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, the first is this, that church is not an optional add-on to our Christian faith. It's not, church is not a bonus thing to help you be a better Christian. Um, it's, it's not something that you can, if, if you want to kind of improve, if you'd like to have some accountability, if you'd like to have a little help, you should definitely go to church. No, it is an essential part of the Christian life. It is what it is to be a Christian. It's lived out in community within the church context. The second thing that we take away from this text is that church was never meant to be a passive thing. Paul calls the church a body. And bodies were meant to move. And a body that doesn't move, or a part of the body that never moves, there's something wrong with it. It's sick, or it's dead, or it's asleep. And I want to submit to you that if church is something that is boring to you, if you find yourself kind of dreading it and dragging yourself there every Sunday, that there's at least a decent chance that this might be why. Because you're going to church, and you're not a part of a church. Because you're not invested in the life of the body. If all you do is just show up and sit in a pew on Sunday, then yeah, there's a decent chance that you're not going to enjoy it that much. You could do that from your house. You could listen to, listen to some worship music on Spotify, and then find a podcast with a really good sermon. Um, uh, so, of course, it may not feel that way. It's not meant to be a passive thing. It's meant to be an active thing. This matters for everyone who is a Christian, but I think this lesson is also specifically important to college students for a few reasons. The first is this, um, that the, um, the comparison level, the ratio, let me say that, the ratio of responsibilities to freedom in college is out of whack in ways that it is no other time in your life. So, when you're a kid, um, you have relatively uh, low responsibilities. There's not a whole lot of stuff that you're being counted on to do, right? Show up to school, that's basically it. You know what I mean? But there's not like, you don't have a whole lot depending on you, a whole lot that you've got to get done and do. Um, but at the same time, as a kid, there's not a whole lot of freedom that you have. You have way less freedom. Everyone in your life, it feels like, can tell you what to do and what not to do, and you've got to be ready to obey and listen to all of those things. You don't get to set all the standards for your schedule and time and all that stuff. Um, when you're an adult, you've got tons more freedom. Um, you don't have parents telling you what to do all the time. You don't have teachers what, telling you what to do. You may have a boss, um, but outside of that, and, and you may even become the boss, so, it doesn't matter, but, so you've got um, way more freedom to live how you want, and yet, at the same time, you have way more responsibility than you've ever had before. Um, 
So you, you've got a spouse, perhaps. You've got this job that requires a lot of your time. You've got, I've got three kids that I'm responsible for keeping alive inside my home, right? And so that's a lot of responsibility. Um, college is weird because in college, you start here as a kid and your, uh, your responsibility level does definitely go up in college. You have more you're responsible for than when you were in high school and junior high. But your freedom level goes way up. And so there's a disparity between those two things. Um, and that can result in disaster. That's, you've got a lot of freedom and a lot of extra time to do really stupid things and to become really self-centered and to get yourself in trouble. It can also be a really amazing opportunity for some kingdom things to take place in your life and in the communities around you. And so that's why this matters a whole lot for you in your college time. And, and, and one of the things that's important to realize is in a town like this, there are all kinds of things. Stillwater caters to you. Right? The whole town caters to you. It, it's set up for you and what you want and, and all of those things. And that goes for the churches and the ministries here. We cater to you. Uh, there will never be a time in which there's like so many churches committed to kind of helping, finding ways for you to connect and get involved in all those things. The truth is in Stillwater, you could do a different spiritual thing every night of the week. Literally, I mean, there's, there is something offered. You could go to a worship night or a, or a Bible study or a small group or something every given night of the week and think that you're super spiritual and that you're really growing because you're doing that. When in reality, all that's really happening is this consumerist mindset is being breeded in you where you just show up and take. And you just show up and say, feed me. You just show up and you say, what do you got for me? And you think that you're really growing because you're getting all this knowledge. And you think that you're really growing because you're singing a lot of worship songs. You think that you're really growing, but you're not growing up, you're just growing out. And so it's really significant that you take steps to make sure that you do not breed in yourself a consumer mindset that so many people, not just your age, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about you right now because we're college, but this is across the board a problem in the church that, that so many people bring a consumer mindset to church and they walk away going, ah, I didn't really like the, the sermon today. I really love that song. We should sing that song more often. Those are okay things to think, but, but church is just something that's there to be given to me. And I judge it each week based on how, how much I enjoyed what was given to me rather than being ready to give. This is really important. Um, I had, let's see what time, I got a little time. Um, when I went to Ozark, very first time I'm there, I, I, I think I've shared this here, I don't know. When, when I got there, it's the weekend that I'm, unload, I'm, I'm, I'm moving into the dorms there. I'm unloading all the stuff out of my car. My cousin was also going to, to Ozark at the time. And so she was there with us and, and her mom and dad, my aunt and uncle were there and they were actually helping me unload my stuff and move it into the dorm. And I remember this conversation I had with my aunt. And, and she said to me, Drew, at Ozark, you're going to get this opportunity to like every day you're going to be filling your mind up with like scripture and theology and doctrine. You're going to have so much stuff poured into you um, while you're here. And so she said, it's going to be very important for you then to make sure that you find an outlet to serve with all the stuff that you're taking in. Otherwise, you're going to get, and this is a phrase that I've never forgotten, you're going to get spiritually constipated. All right? Um, so if you take away nothing from tonight, all right, just remember this. Don't be spiritually constipated, okay? Um, that's, that's, that's the concept of taking, it's going to get gross here, taking in, okay, without ever having any outlet for that, all right? So don't get too into thinking through that. But um, that's the idea of growing out without growing up. It's unhealthy for a person to be in that situation where all you do is receive. Now, you're not sitting in classes at a Bible college taking that stuff in all the time, but you do have, as I said, access all around you to things where you get to learn and grow and be fed into, and if you're not finding an outlet, it may be bad for you. So let me say this. I believe this, that you need the church. I believe that's not an option. I, I believe you need to be a part of it, but I also believe that the church needs you. I believe that it needs your gifts, and I believe that it needs your talents and your passions. I also believe that as a college student, you're in this unique spot in which you are cool to everyone. Um, like when you're in college, everyone likes you. Kids think you're cool. High, uh, like 
adults don't mind hanging out with you. They think you're tolerable, all right? Um, <laughs> high school kids think you're cool, and they don't think anybody's cool, right? But they think you're cool. And so it's like this one, you're, you're at the sweet spot where like you can literally kind of serve and work with anybody right now. And kids will think you're the greatest and, and adults will like to serve alongside of you. You have a unique opportunity with the freedom that you have to be able to serve the church in some really um, neat ways. In Paul's day, the issue was that people would be prideful in their giftedness, that they would think too much of themselves. Um, in our day, a lot of times, the issue is not so much a pride in it, but that we actually fail to even utilize them, that we often neglect them, that we don't understand them very often. And so it's significant to, uh, that we would not be those kinds of people, and I want to charge you with that. Let me, in, in light of that, give you, as, as we kind of wrap up, I want to take five, seven minutes to just give you some thoughts on spiritual gifts real quick. And then kind of encourage you towards that in there. So here we go. Number one, this is what we know to be true about spiritual gifts. And I've mentioned this already. Number one, every believer has at least one. If you are a Christian, when you became a Christian, you were given by the Holy Spirit a specific gift. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So every believer has at least one. Second thing we know about spiritual gifts, they do not come from you. 1 Peter 4.10 says we are stewards. This is a phrase that actually, actually says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So it calls us stewards. A steward is someone who, who doesn't own the money, who doesn't own the property, but their job is for their boss. They are to take care of the money and the property and to use it wisely for their boss's benefit and for the benefit of his household. Okay? And so it's not, not my money, but I use it for him. And that's the idea of what a gift is. A gift is something that you have in your possession, but it's not yours. It didn't come from you. It's not your thing. Um, it's something that God has given to you, which means, A, don't be prideful about your gift. Because it's not your doing. It's like a kid who drives around his dad's car, his dad's sports car, and feels awesome about himself and thinks he's really cool. You're not cool, man. It's not yours. All right? It's your dad's. So don't pretend like you're cool because you get to drive your dad's. Don't pretend like you're cool because of the gift that you've been given. It's not yours. It's your dad's. Um, second thing it means this is don't believe that your gift is not useful. God gave it to you for a reason. He gave you your specific gift and put you in the community that he put you in for a reason. Jack Cottrell is a New Testament scholar. He says this, No matter how humble my gift may be, every other member of the body depends on it. And no matter how impressive my gift may be, I am dependent upon and blessed by even the humblest contributions of every other member. So whatever my gifting is, however flashy, cool or uncool it is, I have need of you and I need to use my gift Number three, we know this, that they are not primarily for you. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, we read it already, says that the manifestation of the Spirit was given to you for the common good. That is, for the rest of the church. He'll go on to say over and over again in 1 Corinthians 14, it is for the building up of the body. It is for the building up of the body. It is for the building up of the body, not for you. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not some building up that you get to experience. It is life-giving to get to serve in your giftedness, to get to serve in the way that God has designed you and wired you to do those things. But it is not primarily for your glory. It is not primarily for you to feel good, but it is for the building up of the body. And fourth, um, you should aim to discover and use your gifts. You should aim to discover and use your gifts. Um, Bane, do you guys want to go ahead and come on up here for a second? I'll just have you start getting ready. Um, so question, how do you discover your gifts? How do you know what your gifts are? Because there's some of you in here who go, do this, that's, yeah, that's easy. Actually, people get to stand up here right now, and they get to, like, this is, this is obvious, right? When you've got a gift in music, you, it's pretty easy to know this is how I do it. This is how I work through these things. This is how I get to utilize it. It's not always so obvious for some of us. Not all of us know 
how we're wired and, and the way that God, the gift that God has given us. So how do you find out what your gift is so that you can begin to use it? Let me tell you a couple of different things. One is, this is maybe the most common way that people do, is that there are assessments that you take that can kind of help you think through those things. Sunnybrook does something called PLACE. Um, which is this class, and it comes with an online assessment that you take to help you discover your gifts so you can start to use it. That's good. I think that's helpful, but that's probably not primary. Um, another way is to kind of basically do self-examination and look at your life. If you're in table groups, you got this doc, you got there this document. It comes from J.D. Greer on the back side of it, and he talks about looking at the the blending of these three these three things: your abilities, your affinities and your affirmations. That is, what you're good at, what you're passionate about, and where people have affirmed you and said, hey, I see this in you. All right? Um, but the main way that you begin to discover your giftedness, other than prayer, is to start serving somewhere. You'll never know what your abilities are unless you're serving. You'll never know what you're passionate about unless you're serving. And no one can ever say, hey, when you did this, it was really encouraging to me. It really strengthened me if you never do anything. And so the most important thing I would give you tonight is this, that you just start serving somewhere, anywhere, now. Get involved wherever you're at in the local church, um, in some sort of ministry here in town, and serve and do those things for the good of the body. Another thing I just throw on to you is it is significant and important for us that we will affirm one another in our giftedness. When you have been strengthened by, when you have been encouraged by a brother or sister using their gifts, whether that is a gift of service, whether that is a gift of administration, whether that is a gift of teaching, whatever that may be, say that to them because they may not even know that. And it's good for them to know, man, the Lord blessed me through you using your giftedness tonight. I'm so grateful for this lady. I don't even know her name. I don't even remember her name. I'm a sophomore in college, right after my sophomore year, and I'm leading this small group of kids at Sciocomo, and, uh, and I'm nervous. I grew up, I grew up really shy, um, too nervous to order my own food at McDonald's. I would always have to make my little brother do that for me. Um, did not like talking in front of people. Um, and I led this small group with this teacher from Tyro, Kansas that week, this like grade school or junior high small group. And at the end of the week, she pulled me aside and said, I want you to know um, that I see in you a giftedness for teaching. And I needed that. I don't, I don't know that woman's name. One day I'm going to get to thank her um, uh, for telling me that. And so I hope that we do that. But, I, but more than anything, I want to tell you this. Serve. We call this ministry mindset at the table. And it is using your gifts and passions to serve Christ's mission and His church. Serve. If you're wondering how to do that, if you're wondering where do I start, if you're wondering what do I do from there, come talk to us. We would love to help you out in that. But for now, we're going to spend a little time singing, thinking on the indicatives of the gospel that will flow into the imperatives of how we live our lives.